Kurt and Alfred. You guys are stirring the bee's nest of my soul, man. You guys hit on some topics uh, that are very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I very much appreciate the invitation to the conversation, Kurt. Thank you so much for calling me and letting me know. I don't know how I missed this conversation just organically, but uh sure enjoy uh, what you guys are, are talking about and uh, would uh, have some thoughts maybe to, to share with you guys as well. Um, give you a little bit of context by what I mean on all of these different subjects. So my wife and I have now been married for 23 years and 11 days. Uh, I guess it would be we just recently celebrated our 23rd wedding anniversary uh, I was born in 1973. She was born in 1972, right in the middle of the Gen X generation. Uh, in my time, uh, I'm also an ordained minister. Graduated from a Bible college in Dallas, Texas, called Christ for the Nations. I'm an ordained minister. Uh, I've been leading short-term mission trips. You guys know all this stuff for 13 years, and I travel and speak uh, itinerantly here in the United States as well as internationally. And so I love my wife. Uh, I love uh, the church and Jesus and sharing the gospel. And interestingly enough, I have read and studied uh, at least to some degree about the different generations. So there is a book called Generations that some authors wrote. Man, I want to say this book came out in the early 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And they track back to the beginning of U.S. history and are able to identify four uh, generational types that have repeated themselves seamlessly with only one exception around, I want to say it was around the First World War, uh, but these four generational types have repeated themselves over and over and over through all the, the different generations. And I came into this because as I started coming into ministry work uh, with my father, who as at the tail end of a generation called the silent generation, my mother, who is a boomer, straight up, all the basic characteristics of boomers, she embodies. Um, and we started, I started traveling with him to various conferences and, and looking for my peers, and I realized there's nobody my age in ministry. Uh, there are not that many Gen Xers uh, in the ministry circles here. There were a lot of boomers and then the up-and-coming group of the millennials, and I started asking the question, where are all the people of my generation? And that led me on a quest to sort of read up and uh, study about the different generations, the living generations in our country now, which are the silent generation, the boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials, and then there's a generation coming behind the millennials already, uh, which I don't think has been named yet. I try to keep up on it, but my son would be in that next generation. So that's a little bit of a backstory. Uh, I'll share a couple of segments here tonight on just my thoughts, especially on marriage and generational differences. Uh, but you finished up, Kurt, talking about the direction of the church. And uh, so I wanna, I'm going to hold my thoughts there uh, until tomorrow. I really want to hear what you guys are going to share tomorrow. You left sort of a cliffhanger of Alfred and I are working on some dynamic directions for the church. So I'm really excited to hear what that is and uh, engage in that conversation as well. So once again, thanks for the invite. And here's my thoughts on uh, marriage and my thoughts on the different generational types. So first of all, you contextualize marriage, both you guys did, as far as um, 
a marriage dynamic with high school sweethearts, um, which I thought was very, very interesting, Kurt, where you talked about how I, I, most marriages that start as high school sweethearts just don't make it. Um, interestingly enough, both you guys are married to your high school sweethearts now, you know, a decade plus. Um, my wife and I were not high school sweethearts. We met in college outside of high school, um, but we were both still pretty young. Uh, we met, let's see, when I was 19 years old, and uh, we knew each other for about two years, um, and then were married in 1994, so now we've just celebrated 23 years. Um, so I don't know that I can speak directly whether high school sweethearts or not high school sweethearts. I know people who were high school sweethearts who subsequently their marriages didn't work. I know people who were high school sweethearts like yourselves who subsequently their marriage did work. I could only uh, imagine how young, looking back on it, how young my wife and I were, not just physically but like emotionally and mentally young uh, when we got married. And like now as a 44-year-old man, I would think, oh, well, that was way too young to get married. But somehow it worked. You know what I'm saying? So we, we look at dynamics and think, Here's all the reasons why this is not going to work. Um, but then somehow it does. And I thought it was a very interesting perspective, uh, Kurt, that you shared that uh, you were running away from a very bad home life situation. So you're running away from a dysfunctional home, a broken home, um, and looking for love, looking for fulfillment, looking for, as you described, those basic human needs uh, in a woman. Um, and, or, you know, and as you described in a young girl and, uh, but you guys somehow made it work. And so I think back to a piece of a marriage, a piece of marriage advice that my wife and I were given. We went to pre-marriage counseling. When we got married, we went to marriage counseling for probably the first year or two of our marriage. We were a part of a, of a, like a Sunday school class at our church that was for newly married couples. And I cannot I cannot in any way um, understate, or I'm sorry, I could not in any way overstate the value of that type of community around us and getting that type of support of getting pre-marriage counseling and then getting marriage counseling in our early years and then uh, being a part of that Sunday school class. Subsequently, later on at another church, once we moved to Florida, um, we uh, did pre-marriage counseling. Uh, for some young couples and taught a pre-marriage counseling class uh, when we had been married probably about the amount of time you guys are, 10, 12, 15 years, kind of in that range. But uh, at our rehearsal dinner, um, all the people had gathered there together for the rehearsal dinner, and there was a, a couple who at that time, uh, their names were John and Joy, John and Joy, and just sweethearts. And they had been married, I don't know, at that point in time, it seemed like they had been married like 100 years. They probably weren't that old, but they were just this really neat couple. And John said to us, and really they both kind of uh, sort of affirmed this statement, and then subsequently they were the leaders of this class that we were in in this church. John said, the best marriage advice I can give you is to prioritize the marriage itself. He said, there will be days in your marriage where you guys won't like each other. But if you'll prioritize the marriage relationship itself, as though he were painting the marriage relationship as this other third person. So there's, there's husband, there's wife, and then there's the marriage relationship itself. And he was saying, if you will prioritize 
that marriage relationship, the marriage that you have, then each of you individually will be fed from that, from the value and from the benefit that's in that uh, relationship. So if you think about it like this, if, if you were very thirsty, let's say you're, you're, you're thirsty and you know you're going to need water now and you're going to need water later, and uh, here's, here's two people approaching a barrel of water. If both of you guys simply extract from that barrel and extract from one another, you know, I'm going to take the water that's in the barrel and I'm going to take the water that you have too and never replenish, then eventually the barrel is going to be dry. It's going to be empty and you're going to be thirsty again. And you have already taken from, you know, the other person, in this case, your spouse who's standing right there. And so they have nothing to offer you. You have nothing else to offer this marriage, this barrel of water has nothing else to offer. And John and Joy said to us, if you will constantly replenish the barrel, if you'll constantly fill the marriage relationship up over time, uh, you know, regularly, every day, and over a period of time, the outpouring of that barrel will satisfy your thirst. You will have the fulfillment of what you need in the marriage relationship because you're giving to the marriage relationship. As you pour into the marriage relationship, the marriage relationship itself will be able to give back to you. And I can tell you after 23 years of marriage to a woman I absolutely adore and love with all my heart that that is so true. Uh, that, is, that is true. Our 23 years have been amazing. And there have been times that we have had our challenges and that we have found is that if we will invest into our relationship uh, and invest into each other in that relationship, then the relationship itself nourishes each one of us. It feeds each one of us. It cares for each one of us. But if we neglect our relationship at any age, you know, young or old, if we neglect that relationship, if we take positions of selfishness and we take positions of, well, I need to make sure my needs are met. And we look at this, well, I'll meet your needs if you're actively meeting my needs as well. Um, versus I'm going to invest into this relationship and follow through with a commitment that I have made that I'm going to be married until the day I die to this woman. Not I'm trying this on or I'm trying this out for a little while, but I'm committed to this relationship because I'm committed to the relationship. I'm committed to the marriage. Then what ends up happening is not only is our relationship healthier, but each one of us are happier in the relationship, even through challenges, even through difficult situations, even through job change, even through moving, you know, back and forth halfway across the country a couple of times, which we've done, uh, you know, even through financial blessing and financial challenge, which we've had, you know, so we've, 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 lived long enough to, to go through those things. I've lived long enough to be both the hero and the villain in my own life story. But I know of my marriage and my relationship, as I pour into that relationship, it feeds uh, back to me. Now, I would argue also that that is a biblical principle. Uh, the Bible speaks of marriage as a covenant, not as a contract. A contract is... I'll do my part, you do your part, but if you violate your part, I can be excused from my part. And the Bible speaks of marriage as a covenant, which is I'm going to do my part 
I'm going to invest in the relationship whether you do your part or not, whether you invest in the relationship or not. I am still going to uh, give and make sure that this relationship is healthy. You know, people talk about marriage being a 50-50. No, I mean, that's, that's entirely unrealistic that you and your spouse are going to both give into the relationship the exact equal amount and that it takes uh, all that you are giving uh, an equal amount to make it into 100%. It's a covenant relationship, which means you give 100% and she gives 100% all the time. And you know what? Sometimes your 100% is really like 50%. You know, I mean, sometimes as husbands, you know, we just, you know, are not swinging for the fences. You know, we're not doing great here. And we sometimes have to step over a game. And sometimes, you know, the same situation for the wife. So you, you, you give your whole heart to it. And then on the other side, you give your spouse grace because more than you're even committed to him or her, you're committed to the marriage. So that would be my, my thoughts on marriage. All right, let's talk about the different living generations. You guys touched on this, and this to me is just a fascinating uh, subject. It's been more of a hobby than anything to read about and learn about. I have uh, taught to some degree, uh, primarily with church leaders, about generational dynamics because that's the area that it's been of most interest to me is how the church is pro as a whole is processing through generational dynamics, and that may even lead into the conversation that you're having tomorrow as far as the direction of the church. So you've got primarily within the United States now... Uh, four living generations. You have the silent generation. Uh, you have baby boomers, which are called the boomer generation because it was a huge boom in population. Some 80 million people in the baby boom generation. It's just absolutely massive. Uh, you've got Gen Xers, which is a relatively small generation, below 60 million people. Um, in, in closer to the 50 million, 55 million range, something like that. And then you've got the millennial generation, which depending on, you know, who you're reading or that sort of deal, as far as where they assign the years to it, is as big as the boomer generation, uh, right about the same size. Some people argue it's a little bit smaller. Some people argue it's a little bit larger. One of the interesting dynamics about uh, generations within the United States and in U.S. history is that any generation you're talking about is most influenced by the generation uh, that is two generations ahead of it. In other words, the millennial generation is most influenced by boomers, and the Gen X generation is most influenced by the silent generation. It's not the generation directly preceding it. It's two generations ahead that are the influencers in society when that generation is in childhood uh, stage. And, and I'll give you some examples. Um, there's also a, if you think of like a wave, um, you know, take an audio wave, for example, that goes up and down, up and down. At the top of that wave would be one particular generational cycle. As the wave comes down, Right in the middle would be a next generational type. At the bottom, a next generational type. On the way back up, next generational type. When you get to the top of the next wave, the generation might, be, might have a different name, but it has similar characteristics to the generation 
uh, four units back at the top of that last wave, if you can kind of envision that. Uh, that's important because that wave represents society's impression and affinity towards children. And this is incredibly important and influential when you're discussing generations to understand what does society think about children at that time that they're born. I can I speak to this contextually as a Gen Xer. Gen Xers are primarily born from the early 1960s into the early 1980s, around that 20-year time span. The Gen X generational type was at the bottom of the wave. It was the generational type at the bottom of the wave in cultural affinity towards children in our time period. In other words, the, the shift, the swing, the, the cultural feel towards children was not good. It was the lowest of all of the generational types. And again, this repeats every four generations. It's a repeated cycle from the beginning of the United States history. The last time there was a generational type like millennials was around the turn of the century. And I'll give you some examples of, of how those two compare. So when you look back at the generation, you know, 100 years ago or so around the turn of the century, that was also around the time that automobiles were coming into the United States, or, or coming into the world, really, for that matter. And society was criticizing children for running out into the street and getting run over by a car. So instead of looking at ways to make things safer or protect the children, they were criticizing the children for getting run over. Okay, you fast forward to the Gen X generation. I was born in 1973, and that is the year that abortion was legalized. So whatever your political stance on abortion is, should it be legal, should it not be legal, it was the year that our country, by and large, said, for whatever reason, unborn child, we would like to kill you. That's pretty significant if you're the generation that that comes into, into legality. I understand there are issues about the mother. I'm not trying to make a political statement about abortion. I'll share with you my personal thoughts on that if you want to hear it. But from a child standpoint, if you look at it from the perspective of the child or the children of that generation, this is when we said it is now legal to kill you even before you're born. Or, well, especially before you're born because it's illegal to kill you after you're born. Okay, our generation also saw things like the Watergate scandal. Early Gen Xers saw Watergate. Um, late Gen Xers saw... Uh, the space shuttle blow up in school. You know, I remember watching the thing in school. It's launching, the sky blows up. And so we saw um, what should have been uh, authorities and leaders and protectors of society uh, uh, crumbling right before us through scandal or through bad science, you know, or just, you know, through an accident, through a mistake, that sort of deal. The other thing that happened is that the Gen X generation is known as the latchkey kid generation. So there was uber spikes in the divorce rate through the gen, through the, the uh, Gen X generation. Our primary influencers were the silent generation. Now you think about the silent generation, the, the, um, the younger members of the silent generation were in large part the soldiers coming back to the United States from Vietnam. And how did our nation receive them? They did not receive them well. Our nation did not receive those soldiers well at all. Um, we had horrible things to say about them as a people. So here's a society, here's a group of men and women who had been taught if you'll just work hard, keep your head down, and uh, not get into trouble, you'll be okay. 
And when they were sent off to war and then returned, our society said, oh, no, 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 you're bad. You're bad. You transition from there. So in that case, you've got a lot of now drug abuse. You've got a lot of alcoholism, which then subsequently leads to bad relationships and divorce. And so a lot of the Gen X kids uh, grew up with divorced parents or, you know, single mom working two jobs or mom and dad working, you know, two, three jobs, four jobs combined. So it's ride the bus to school, ride the bus home. And although you're, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old, just go home by yourself, let yourself in. I'll be home around six, seven, eight o'clock when I'm done with my second job. And so you had latchkey kids who were brought up primarily on MTV. The Gen X generation is also called the MTV generation. Because of this, and just our own, as Gen Xers, our own um, rage, anger. You look at a lot of the music from the Gen X generation. It's when a lot of the rock and roll really started getting heavier and harder. Uh, you have drugs now getting from the parents to the children. Um, and you just run into a lot of these challenges. The Gen X generation grows up then very rebellious. And we become a generation who are not, by and large, liked by our parents or society as a whole, especially, i.e., the silent generation, and we don't like them either. So there's a lot of parental-child conflict with Gen Xers, leading to, Kurt, exactly what you were describing, people running away from dysfunctional, broken homes, looking for someone to love them because they themselves are broken. The Gen X generation, by and large, the broken generation. A couple of quick examples just in pop culture. Uh, some of the top producing movies during the Gen X generation had to do with uh, movies in which the child star was literally demonized as the villain. So you have movies like Rosemary's Baby, Children of the Corn, um, you have these movies where the, the, the child in the movie is not only bad, it's the worst kind of bad. It's a demonic bad. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible bad uh, type situation. But then you have this amazing transition. The early 80s uh, come on uh, to the scene, and the number one movie, man, I forget exactly which year it was that it was uh, produced, around 1981, 82, 83, something like that. Number one box office hit was the movie Home Alone. Home Alone. You guys remember this? Christmas movie. Some of you guys, it's Christmas time, fixing to be in a couple of months, and you're going to watch Home Alone. And in Home Alone, the child is the smartest person in the movie. The child is the hero. The child is, is, is the, the, the victor. He, he warts off the, the bad old guys, you know, and they're idiots anyway. And, uh, you know, he fends the, the house from them. And while he had, you know, this wish to be away from his parents at the beginning, he reconciles that with, with God and with himself and uh, saves the family and saves the home. And then, then is subsequently restored back to this huge family that is just trying to get back to him to surround him. And that is very much a picture of the millennial generation. So then on comes the millennial generation. If you go back to that wave, remember, you've got parts of, you've got a wave in which society is moving up. We love kids. And then it's moving down. Hey, we're not so fond of them. The millennial generational type is on the upswing halfway up that, 
halfway up that uh, uh, affinity wave of culture for children. Leading off with, again, the movie Home Alone is just a great uh, example in, in media. And culture then says, we love our children. And again, who's the primary influencer for the millennial generation? It's going to be the boomer generation. Boomers who would say, hey, I'm somebody. Uh, you know, we hear this affectionately said in the workplace and even in the church place amongst boomers. I'm not going to retire. I'm going to refire. You think about the army advertisement for the uh, boomer generation. Be all you can be. And during the boomer generation, we have the rise of the self-help industry, not just books, but I mean like an entire industry of how you can be somebody. You can be great because you're a boomer. The mantra of the millennials is we can be somebody. We can be great. So then you see tragedy happen in the millennial generation. You see things like the Columbine shooting. And what did we see on television? You guys think back. What did we see on television? We saw entire classrooms, entire groups of children running out together to their parents who now were not at work leaving their kids at home alone as latchkey kids, but were there to greet them and gather around them. So the kids themselves were bonded together through tragedy. They weren't isolated in the same way that uh, Gen X kids were. They were grouped together, and the identity for the millennial generation becomes a we generation versus an, a, an ostracized generation, as in Gen Xers, or versus a me generation, as in baby boomers. So then you look at workplaces, and you look at kind of the early days. I remember reading an article in the early days of, I uh, want to say that it was the early days of Facebook, where when they were setting up like a big office um, complex, instead of setting up cubicles for all their workers, man, let's tear all the walls down. Let's put a big table and let's get five or six or 12 people around this table together. You know, because we're all here together, we're all part of the team, and we're all champions. Because, you know, in my generation, in Gen Xers, if you went out for Little League Baseball and you didn't make the cut, you didn't even make the team, um, or if you went out to the game and your team lost, well, then you lost. But with the millennial generation, hey, if you just show up, you're on the team, and everybody who plays gets a trophy because we're all champions. We're all champions. Now, what does this do to millennials. Here's the interesting thing. I mentioned to you that there are four generational types that repeat themselves. Even if they have different names, they're the same type. The millennial generation fits into a, a generational type called a hero type. These are the heroes. I mean, these are our cultural heroes. Um, I think that by the end of the millennial generation, if we have enough science to keep ourselves alive long enough to see it, certainly our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will look back on the millennial generation and see some of the amazing things that they've already accomplished and certainly will accomplish throughout the entirety of their generation because they truly are an amazing generation. There are interesting dynamics. People talk about how millennials are noncommittal. I disagree with that. I don't think that millennials are noncommittal. I think they commit differently and they commit for different reasons. Gen Xers say millennials are noncommittal because we commit because our hearts are broken. Our hearts have been broken all of our life. We're by and large a broken generation, so we latch on to things, and we, we, we have to hang on there uh, out of commitment, really, for ourselves. Millennials approach commitment differently. They pro approach it from kind of a logical standpoint, 
and they seem to approach it from a we standpoint. So they'll be committed through different things. You look at social media, for example. Ha, we're here, sitting here having this conversation on the Anchor platform, a social media version of podcasting. So it's not just about me putting my voice out there. It's about we putting our voices out there and commenting on one another's comments. In fact, really, this whole segment didn't even start for me. I'm only piggybacking on a conversation that you guys have had. So maybe I'm just capitalizing on the us idea, and I'm not even a millennial. Amazing how these guys are affecting every single generation around them. Anyway, I digress. So you look at millennials and we would say, well, millennials don't know what it means to have hard work and put dedication into it. And that there may be some truth to that. I think the more correct statement is, is that millennials may not know how to fail. I was actually talking to my wife earlier today. I said, you know, I listen here on Anchor Platform and I know yesterday was uh, World Mental Health Day, but I listen to a lot of people who, as I listen to them, I think, they are probably Gen Xers or Millennials, and it seems like a lot of the Millennials here talk about um, mental health, especially as it relates to depression and anxiety. Now, why would, a, why would a group of young people who have been loved and doted over and adorned their entire lives have anxiety? It's because, if you, I think, if you have not experienced failure, in any capacity, then failure terrifies you. I think that the millennial generation grows up with this uber high um, level of expectation of performance by culture. We expect millennials to be awesome. And quite frankly, I think that culture expects Gen Xers to be uh, rebellious punks. But uh, we expect millennials to rescue us. We expect them to save us. And I think at a deep, deep level, they feel it. And they've never experienced, they've never been to a baseball game where they lost and didn't get a trophy and weren't rewarded for showing up and, hey, Tommy, you gave your best, you did your all, and that's really what counts. And that is what counts. But sometimes in conflict, there's a winner and a loser. And sometimes losing builds inside of you the moral fortitude to be able to move forward without anxiety. But the other side is, is that sometimes losing teaches you that you're a loser. And this is a great thing about millennials is that millennials... While they may be terrified of failure, they also have no context for it because in their minds, they are winners. Because they believe that they are winners to such a high degree, the odds are they're going to win. And because they, are, they move together in this collective mass of a we generation and a we identity, they're going to win together. And if you've got a handful of, of upset Gen Xers, versus an entire crowd of unified, together, brave, bold, confident millennials. Buddy, I'll take the millennials any day of the week in that fight. The millennials are going to win. They are an amazing generation. Now, how that plays in the dating and marriage, hadn't thought about that a whole lot. That was some interesting perspective that, that you brought in. I've thought about it a lot, as you may can pick up on, on how it relates to the workplace and and transitions in church and, and things like that. But, um, so it's exciting. It's an exciting time. It's exciting to see how uh, uh, Gen Xers and Millennials will continue to uh, progress and work together. So those are some thoughts that I have on marriage and on the generational types. I'm very interested uh, in this topic. I've been wanting to look for ways to create a segment talking about generational types anyway, especially as it relates to uh, church work. Um, so I'm looking forward to the conversation tomorrow 
And uh, I'll be listening out for some of those segments, especially what you guys are talking about for the development of the church. You had some pretty uh, strong statements. Some I agree with, Kurt, on the condition of the church. I think that there are ways in which the church is a little bit out of uh, context. The amazing thing is, and one of the great things about Gen Xers is having been latchkey kids, oftentimes having gone home and just had to sort of figure it out on your own, is that Gen Xers are by and large figuring out that church as it has been, isn't working. And so, you know, I'm connected with some organizations and have visited some uh, some conferences and things like that for organizations that are just full on, full tilt, crazy about planting new churches here in the United States that are much more relevant and much more uh, connected to culture and connected to uh, society. I personally think that there are some pros and cons to that. Um, sometimes, uh, Gen Xers and then what we see and even some of these churches can be a little bit introspective in regards to how it applies internationally, which is a big issue for me because I am an international missionary. But I see a lot of good going on in uh, new churches around the United States and church congregations who want to seek racial reconciliation, who want to seek reconciliation across gender lines, across uh, sexual orientation lines. Um, across you know racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, uh, and things like this, and so I think that there really are some great positive things um, that are going on. You know, oftentimes in society we like to talk about here's what's going on bad, here's what's going on negative. Maybe it's because Gen Xers right now are moving into the uh, influential stage of our generational life. As Gen Xers, we're we're now kind of middle age, and we're we're becoming the cultural and society influencers, and so it's easy for us to sort of point the finger and say, wow, look at all this bad stuff. You know, I do that sometimes, um, but I think it's important for us to catch ourselves. So I'm really, really interested in that conversation, both for the challenges where the church is at, as well as for the opportunities, because I think the church does have some incredible opportunities. Hey, if for no other reason than coming up behind us is this amazing army of millennials, and maybe, just maybe, they'll save us all. So thanks for the conversation. Hope you guys are having a great night. Look forward to chatting with you tomorrow.